even though we were dirt poor, we could always find food. We always knew how to take care of ourselves. When we look at kids today, we wonder, gosh, could they have lived back then? And I don't think so. There's just too much that's been handed to these generations. New Wailing Nostalgia. Yay, podcast! Good morning, Native America! Young and Indigenous here. My name is Isabella James, and I'm here with Connor. Take it, Bay. All right, I'm Bay. <laughs> Just kidding. My name's Michelle Pulaski, and I'm from the Lemmy Nation. Yay Podcast stands for Young and Indigenous, and that's who we are. We are doing this for our community members. We are trying to build bridges by bringing people together to share their concerns, stories, love, ideas, and more. But it is also for those people who are outside of our community who would like to learn more about us as Indigenous people from our podcast episodes. From the beginning, my parents were Vila and Haynes Julius. My mom was Jefferson, born. uh, Her father was Simon Jefferson. When the border was instituted, we were, my family was given names. My family, they were all Indian names back then. So my family was given English names. My grandma's name was actually, was named, last name was John. And her son's name was Julius. But they switched that around when somewhere in there and they started calling us uh, John Julius instead of Julius John. My relatives on the other side of the border, their all last name is John. Let me see. So we're related to actually half the reservation. Your grandma's related to the other half of the reservation. Um, my dad was Haynes Julius. Let me see. He was born in 1917. My mom was born in 1926. My mom and dad met when they were Oh, gosh, my mom was 13 when they got married. Wow. Imagine imagine that, mm-hmm. 13. She had 14 kids. Can you name your siblings? Okay, I'll go from the top to the bottom. Jenna, Bop, Rod, Vicky, Vera, Vila, Craig, John, Mike, myself, Tammy, and Vanessa. There was also Richard and Valerie, but they were infants when they died. I was uh, third to the last. My mom got married out of desperation, I believe, because her and her two other sisters were put in an asylum. They were isolated because they were told they had TB. So they shipped them down to a place uh, down past Seattle. They took them out of their home, brought them down there, didn't tell them why. So after a while of neglect, mistreatment, my mom took her two sisters and, and ran away. They started walking toward Bellingham. They realized they weren't going to make it because they were starving. And way back then, gosh, there wasn't much food around anywhere back then. So they jumped on a train and they headed north and stopped in Bellingham. And when they got to Bellingham, their parents didn't have enough money to take care of them. So they were kind of stuck. They didn't know what to do. My mom met my dad and got married right away and took care of uh, her other two sisters. So anyhow, that's where where I started. My first memory of it was when I was four years old. I remember my grandma taking me to, um, to church, to funerals, and to rummage sales. We had rummage sales back then. Rummage sales, which were kind of like 
where we that's the only place we shopped was rummage sales back then we never walked into new stores and bought anything my family was too poor so growing up i was always following my brothers craig mike john and then my cousins jewel and doug and johnny and dale james from auntie velma's family we were really close we were more like brothers with that family and my parents gosh they drank so much there was so much so much time that we were left to ourselves but i was lucky in the fact that i benefited from the knowledge the accumulated knowledge of my brothers they taught me the difference between right and wrong they taught me how to find food how to take care of ourselves without parents the james's parents were also gone auntie velma and uncle joe they were really neglectful just like my parents so our parents would go drinking every weekend we'd never see them from friday till sunday night so we were left to ourselves to fend for ourselves there was never you know back then there was no tribal support gosh i didn't know we had a tribal center i don't remember ever seeing the tribal center way back then i thought of something else so when you used to tell me that um, there wasn't running water so yeah. you guys had to bring jugs to some place in Lummi to get water yeah um up where the baseball field is um, where the college is at there used to be an old uh, uh gym there and on the side of the gym was an old was a cafeteria and that was our community center back then was that gym and outside they had a just a stand-up faucet and everybody from Lummi used to go up there and get water we used to go up there and get water every once in a while otherwise we just go out to the river and scoop it out of the river and then we let it set for three or four days and then by the time it would all that dirt and stuff would fall to the bottom and then we you know, we just figured the water was good to drink after that so that's what we used for drinking water yep but we drank straight out of the river. What river? Nanooksack. Wow. Mm-hmm. Real indigenous. Way. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Let me see. My grandma would take care of me from, I guess, until she died when she was five. When I was five. And after that, it was really tough. My dad just kind of fell into the bottle horribly and never got out. And the sad thing about that was, was my dad was so, he could do anything. He could fix anything. He could build anything. When he was in the service, he was in the, his unit was called the CBs, which is Construction Battalion. They were the ones that would build the railroads, bridges for armies to cross the rivers. And when they would be sent in to build a bridge, they were under constant fire, so they had their tool bags with them, and they carried their guns. The enemy was always shooting at them because they didn't want them to build a bridge just to cross the rivers to go over, like into Germany. They built massive bridges to go in, going into Germany. So my dad was constantly under fire, but this knowledge that the soldiers brought back from the war was incredible. Our church used to be down by the river. And they moved that church from down at the river up the hill and put it on that hill where it's at right now. And that knowledge came from the war, from all of these, all of the Lummies that went into the service, World War II. Gosh, they could move mountains back in those days. The amount of knowledge my dad came home with was was incredible. He got a job at uh, Intelco when they first built Intelco Aluminum up on the hill. My dad was a big part of that. You know, I remember the president of Intalco, the general manager of Intalco, came down to Stomish one year. He came and, and asked me who my father was. I told him, Haynes Julius, and he says, I know your dad. He says, your dad worked up with him at Intalco, building Intalco. Now, it wasn't at random. He didn't pick me at random. He says something silly like, uh, you look like your dad. I was only nine years old then. But I knew that he'd asked somebody who I was, and he'd come over and introduced himself. And he told me that my dad was, was actually a really good good at construction, and they needed that his knowledge up there when they were building in Telco. He says if he would have just quit drinking, he could have had one of the 
top jobs in Intelco if he just didn't drink so much. It was sad to hear as, as a kid, you know, because I seen how rich that guy was. And I thought, gosh, my dad could have been somebody like that, wealthy like that, if he just didn't drink. But, you know, having 14 kids coming out of the Depression, it had to be tough on them. You know, I, I don't blame my mom at all for the neglect because when she started having these kids, you stop and you think about it, she had 14 kids and started when she was 13. So she had 14 kids by the time she was 27. Did you imagine 14 kids by the time you're 27? She didn't have a childhood. She didn't have a childhood at all. She just went from being a little girl to being a mom of dozens of kids, which is, that'd lead me to drink too if I had 14 kids. I, I don't see anybody having that many kids anymore. Well, we had six, and we raised six others. So that was kind of like 12, but th that was different. We had we had lots of money compared to, gosh, when I was young, we didn't have anything. I heard this term, abject poverty. I know what abject poverty is. It's the worst of the worst. It's the poorest of the poor, and I always believed that we were the poorest of the poor. But growing up, I didn't really, really believe that we were that poor because I had my brothers and I had Jewel and Doug and Johnny and Dale James and we had this ability to find food. We would get up and that'd be our, our first thought would be food. So we'd go out and we'd find food and then after that we would play. We played whatever. When you got that many kids, you could always find something cool to play with. Living down at the river, we had the, the river in front of us which was like an instant playground. And we had this little island across the street from, from where we lived. And we had a, a swing that hung out over the river. So we built a swing out into the river and we would swim over to this little island. And we made a diving board on both sides of the river and on the island. So we would dive from there to over here. And our diving board would shoot straight from here to the, the island on the other side. So we had a little, our little water playground there. And my brother, who could climb trees like nobody's business? He he would build the biggest swings, and the whole res people would kids would come from the whole res come just to come down to our little playground and then swing on our swings and dive in our river, and we made our own playground. And then in the meantime, sometimes we would walk all the way from down at the river, all the way up to Blowdale, walk there and then back. Can you imagine that? Mm -mm. All of these kids, uh, the four of us plus the four James boys, and, and then we'd always have others that would come with us. We had Bruce James and Ray James and Calvin James, Harlan James, all of these Jameses, and that, then us walking, gosh, there, there'd be at least a dozen of us walking from Lummy to Blowdell. Not every day, but we would make it up there several times a summer. So we were used to walking, and we would walk all over the reservation mainly looking for our parents and looking for food. But back then, unlike now, there used to be orchards all around the res, so it didn't matter where you were at, you could always find an orchard. And these orchards had apples, pears, prunes, plums, you name it. We would go sit in these orchards until we were full, and then we'd fill up our little, our little backpacks and, and then head home. So wherever we went around the reservation, Gosh, there was probably six orchards back then. And we would just go from one orchard to the other, and it would keep us fed. But then, you know, back then we also had, you go into the into the woods and, and you'd find these things called sprouts and salmon berries. And we used to feed off from the sprouts and salmon berries. Whenever we couldn't find an orchard, we would just go into the woods, and we always knew where to find food. Even though we were dirt poor, we could always find food. We always knew how to take care of ourselves. When we look at kids today, we wonder, gosh, could they have lived back then? And I don't think so. There's just too much that's been handed to these generations, these few generations since I was a kid. There's probably, what, three generations since then. We were born, raised street tough, street smart, and nowadays the difference between my generation and this generation is we were out in the streets surviving, where nowadays you don't see that. You don't see, uh, with uh, growing up, I was, when I was 10, I was taken from my home and put into a foster home. 
I was isolated. I was taken from my family, taken from my brothers, and put into a foster home by myself. That was wicked. The county foster home system is more like a slave system. I was put on a farm to work, and that's basically all I did was uh, get up, go to school, come home, do my chores, and work until dark. We weren't allowed to watch TV. If we got our chores done right away, we would be assigned other jobs until there was time to go to bed, which didn't take long because I had to be in bed at 8 o'clock every day. Didn't matter whether it was weekends or summer, eight o'clock every day. So it didn't take long to figure, oh gosh, I was, the first time I ran away from the foster home, I was 12. So I stayed in the one foster home for two years until I realized I had enough. I, I couldn't take the viciousness of the brutality of working on these farms like a slave and being treated like a slave. So I just... I run away. I found my brother John, and when I saw him at school, he gave me a note and he said, Let's run. It didn't take me but a second to go, Okay, let's go. But because we didn't plan it, I never brought a thick coat. I never, we never brought food. We just ran. We didn't even wait for school to finish. We took off before noon and started walking toward Bellingham. And back then we figured, oh my gosh, there must be people looking for us. So we didn't walk the roads. We went through the fields all the way to Bellingham. We still had this survival instinct in us where we could find food. And all the way to Bellingham, we found food. It didn't matter where, but we were able to take care of ourselves. So as soon as we got to Bellingham, now this was like the middle of November and it was cold, really cold. So we're walking to Bellingham we looked for our family and we couldn't find them. They no longer lived down at the river. We went down there and we walked to the James's house. There was nobody there, so we walked back to Bellingham. When we got to Bellingham, it was the middle of the night. It was probably two, three in the morning. So we ended up sleeping in the uh, laundromat bathroom. And the next night, we went to a house where we knew our family used to be, where they used to live in Bellingham. That house was so old that by the time we got there, my family was not only there, but the people was tearing the house down. So there was just a shell of the house, no windows, no doors, no furniture, no nothing. But there was an old couch in the, in the living room. So we ended up sleeping on the couch until we couldn't take it anymore. We woke up and, and there was snow on us that had blown through the windows. So we got up and we went back to the laundromat. We got to the laundromat. And then the next day we walked out to the Jameses and they were home. The family was home. The brothers hid us for two weeks. They took care of us for two weeks. And then finally my Uncle Joe found us and he was happy to see us. My Uncle Joe was, was cool like that. So he found my dad and my dad came and got us and brought us to his apartment in Bellingham and he took care of us for a week. And then of all things, he turned us in. Back to the foster home I went. That was one of the most difficult times ever, was when he turned us in. I thought, oh my gosh, that's that was one of the most cruel things that could ever happen. So I went back into the foster home. They brought me back to the same foster home, back to the same place I was in. And I just flat told them, I'm not staying. I'm not staying at all. So my caseworker come up to see me and he says, they tell me you're not staying. They said, I'm not. And I said, I'm going to go. I said, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not, I can't live like this anymore. I, I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm just going to run. So they brought me and put me in a different foster home. And amazingly, there were my four other, five other brothers and sisters. We were all put in the same foster home. They rounded us all up and put us in one foster home. I was stunned to be with my brothers and sisters again. Even my little sisters, Tammy and Vanessa, and my four brothers, we were all in the same foster home. And then, uh, let's see, Brother Craig was the oldest. I was in the seventh grade. Brother Mike was in the eighth. Brother John, ninth. Brother Craig was in the tenth. And then he stayed there till he graduated. So I, he was there for two years with me. And then when he graduated, he went into the service. Brother John went into the service the next year. 
So there was just Brother Mike and I and Sister Tammy and Vanessa there. But when Craig and John was gone, things changed. The whole dynamic of the, the family changed. They started treating Brother Mike and I different. Like we had to take on all the jobs that the other two brothers weren't doing anymore. And they were demanding so much from us. They were punishing us for just the slightest infractions. And that got to be too much. So finally, Brother Mike left. It didn't take me, but a couple of weeks later, I left. I just said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm gone. So the police got up to us real quick and brought me back. They said, I'm not going back to that foster home. So they brought me to a different foster home uh, out at the same school in, in Nooksack. And finally, I found a foster home that was really nice people, really rich and really nice. These people were so nice. I had my own bedroom for the first time in in my life. And when I got there, I got settled in. I wake up in the morning, there's this big stack of money on my dresser. It came from these people. They said, take care of yourself. Buy whatever food you want. We know you're young. We know you need food at school. We know you're playing football, buy whatever you need. And every month there would be that little stack of money that they would put on my on my dresser when I'd wake up. I thought that was just so cool. But I still needed to be with my family, so I, I didn't stay there very long. I found out where, where Brother Mike was. Brother Mike was in a, a foster home here on, on Eldridge Avenue. And so I left that foster home and I came to live uh, with Brother Mike at this other foster home. And this one was, um, the, the whole dynamic there was was boys' home. It, it was a boys' home, and which wasn't bad. It wasn't, we didn't have chores like we did, gosh, on, in the farm system out in the county. It was really uh, like a boys' club is what it was. It was easy. We had very few rules, very few restrictions, no punishments, no nothing. There was very little asked of us to go to school, and that was about it. Still then, they would give us money at the end of the week. They'd give us an allowance, which uh, the allowance was for basically don't steal anything. They knew we were teenagers and that we needed money, so they'd give us money every, every weekend. From there, Brother Mike graduated. We were pretty close. We were really close. Brother Mike and I were gosh, as close as two brothers could be. And then finally he graduated and he went to a Bible college in California called Biola. And the next year, when I was a senior, the the fishing that the Lummies were doing back then changed completely. We went from overnight being poor fishermen to rich fishermen. The Judge Bolt decision, I don't know if you know what that is, was uh, instituted that in my senior year. So I didn't finish school. I didn't finish high school. I went fishing. And that first, before I graduated, before I was 17, in just one month, I made $17,000 as a fisherman. I thought, oh my goodness sakes, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. I made enough to go to, to, go to school. So I, I went to college in, in California. And when I was in California, Brother Mike called me up and he said, I need you to come home to be best man at my wedding. I thought, oh no, I am in, this is the worst time to come home. I'm in finals. I, I need to study. I'm, I've already got a tutor. I can't take a weekend off. I, I, I need to study. And he says, he promised me that he'd study with me when I got home. Right after the wedding, we had a reception. And on the dance floor, of all things, I met Nana. Oh my goodness sakes. That's the first time I met her, the first time I'd seen her. So I met her that night, flew back to college the next day, and I couldn't stay. I, I came home. I quit school and I came home, and, and as soon as I came home, I called up Nana. I, I asked her out, and she said, no. I thought, oh no. So I called her up again. I asked her out again. She said no. I called her up four times. She said no. So finally the fourth time I said, get ready because I'm coming to pick you up. It just so happened I was at this party already and I was at this rich lady's house and she was listening to me talk on the phone to Nana. So she said, take my limousine 
and go pick her up with my driver. And she says, when you get there, she said, have my driver go up to the door and, and escort her out. So we did. We went, I went there in this limousine. The driver went up to the door and, and asked for Nana to come out, and, and she did. And her whole family was sitting there looking out the window, and she was being escorted out, and I was standing at the car waiting for her. And that's how I first met her. And we've been together ever since. We became inseparable after that. I always wanted to be a fisherman. I always wanted, I had a gill netter, and I did really good fishing in the gill netter. Brother Skype bought a purseiner. He hired me in, let me see, in 1980. I fished with him for three years, and each year I made $90,000. I thought if I could just own a boat, which I had enough money to do, I'd be making six times that 90000 which is almost a half a million dollars. So I wanted to run my own boat. And then that year, my brother Mike bought a boat, and then he died. And so I ended up taking over his boat. He was, um, he had his son named Jay, who, when his dad died, Jay come to live with us. We finished raising Jay after my brother Mike died. So I went seining. I went purseining and made a fortune. After fishing was over, I started selling fireworks at the end in uh, September, October to the Canadians. We started wholesaling fireworks to the Canadians. After fireworks season was over, I started selling toys, TVs, gifts. I would go fishing and, and during the summer and after that, I would wholesale fireworks. And when that was over, I had a gifts, uh, toy and gift store. All of this was seasonal stuff. So from January to June, when I'd go fishing, I'd golf half the year and work half the year, which worked out really good. But eventually, I wanted to do more. I wanted something from January to June. So I went to an auction. I thought, I'll work on two or three cars in January and then sell them and then go from there. So I went to an auction. The cars were so cheap. I didn't buy just two or three cars. I ended up buying 52 cars. And so when I would sell, when I sold one of these cars, I would take a trade-in. I would demand that these people would bring me a trade-in. So after I sold those cars, I had 52 cars that I took in as trade-ins and I demanded that these cars run. I was being real selective on who I was selling these cars to. I wouldn't just let them trade in a, a broken car. I wanted something that I could resell. So it would just, the, the cycle would be complete. Buy the car, sell it, take the trade in, sell it. So I kept going to these auctions and buying cars. <clears throat> I bought literally a thousand cars from these auctions and would take them and resell them. So a lot of times... A lot of these cars would break down, so I put them in my backyard, and that's how my wrecking yard started, was having all these broken-down cars. Things were going really good up until 87. I lost my boat. I lost my Saner. It wasn't under my control, so I didn't go fishing in, in 87, 88, 89. That's when I started my wrecking yard. When I lost the boat in, in 87, I didn't have really anything to fall back on back then. We were so broke. Nana and I were so broke. I got on my knees and I started praying. So I, I told God back then, I says, you help me through this. I'll give my life to you. I'll turn my life right over to you completely. So I started reading the Bible. And when I got done reading it, I asked God, I said, is this all there is? Is this all I need to know? My spirit told me, read it again. So I read it again. When I got done reading it the second time, I asked the same question. Is this all there is? Is this all I need to know? My spirit told me to read it again. So I read it again. And this whole time, we were really broke at the time. We went from making hundreds of thousands of dollars to absolutely broke. And finally, I, I, says, I said, Lord, I said, I need to go make money now. I said, you got to let me go. And then I went up and I built that fireworks stand up there. I didn't build a fireworks stand, I built a fireworks store. That's the first time anybody ever had a big fireworks store. I built that fireworks stand in three weeks by myself. 
But even though I didn't, I didn't have a generator back then to help build it to run a saw or or lights or anything. So I used the the saw here at the house, and I built. I cut all my parts and bring them up there. And the whole time I was building, every day people would come up and want to buy fireworks from me. So I started buying wholesale. And as I'm building this the stand, I'm making more money every day, every day, even though the stand isn't even up and ready. And the fireworks season isn't even open yet. But I started selling fireworks. And by the time I got my building done, I'd actually already made a small fortune just selling to Canadians. And then I realized this is really going to work out great. That first season in October, I made $60,000 in that first month of selling fireworks so I knew that was going to be a lot of fun and then that's about what I made every year in in October wholesaling fireworks to the Canadians so after that I kept reading the Bible I kept reading the Bible and I kept studying and and when I would come home from selling fireworks people would call us up and ask us to go pray with them so Nan and I started we started our, our prayer group which consisted of your grandma and grandpa, Vernon and Nancy, and about a, a dozen other lummies, and we would go from house to house. So whoever needed help, whoever needed prayers, we would go pray on them. If somebody was sick or dying, we'd go. We'd rush right over there like little kids and pray on them. And it was so much fun to be working, selling fireworks, and then working for God in in between. And then one day, nephew Aaron come home. Nephew Aaron was living with me, and he was crying like a little kid. He was he was sobbing. So we sat him down on the couch, Nana and I did, and we asked him what happened. And he said his mom was in the hospital dying, that she had a tumor in her neck, and it was the size of a softball, and it was cutting off oxygen to her brain. And this was on December 21st of that year. He says... The doctors want to do surgery on her to just to get her past Christmas because they thought she was going to die in, in about four days. They thought she would actually die on Christmas. So we told him to wait till the next morning till we get our prayer group together. And we sat him in the middle of the room and, and we, lay, we all laid hands on him. We prayed on him as though his mother was right there. And we told him, go now, go see your mom at the hospital. And so when he left... He got to the hospital, and the doctor came up to him and, and says, Aaron, I want to show you something. And he brought him into his office, and he showed him two x-rays. One was taken that morning before surgery, and the, one, the other one was taken the day before. The day before surgery showed the softball-sized tumor in her neck. And that morning's uh, x-ray showed that that tumor was all gone. It had completely gone. You could see where the tumor was at you could see where the the skin was stretched out of proportion the doctor asked Aaron could we do an exploratory surgery on her to see what happened and he said no I'm taking her home she not only lived four days more past Christmas she lived seven more years the doctors had no explanation as to what happened the the actual surgeon that was going to do the work was a Christian and he knew that it was a miracle he knew he was he was looking at a miracle. So this is just one of the miracles that, that we saw that summer. We had another one where Nan, both Nan and I got really sick. We were so sick, in fact, that we couldn't take care of our kids. We couldn't take care of any of them. We, we were just too sick to even to get up and feed them. And then not only that, but bathe them. We not only had our kids, but we had other uh, kids, uh, our nephews and nieces that we were raising. So... We sent some of them over to your grand, your grandma's and Nancy's and some over to my sister Vera's house. And so they took care of them until we could uh, get well ourselves. So we told your Uncle Chris, get home, come and, come and take care of us until we get well. And he said, okay. He was just about to turn 18. He was still 17, but he was just about to turn 18. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be right home. So there was just Nan and I in the house. We waited and waited, and Uncle Chris never came home. The second day, the sun was just going down, and I started to feel a little bit better. I jumped in my truck, and I was heading to Bellingham, and I got to the end of the Kegi Road, and I was going to turn left and go toward town. And instead, I turned right, 
and I was heading toward the, the smokehouse road and, and I go I knew this was something spiritual happening and I said Lord what's what's going on I said I need to go to Bellingham I said I am just weak I started talking to God like he was sitting there right with me and when I got to the smokehouse road I pulled over and I stopped and and I said Lord I says what are you trying to tell me what are you trying to tell me and then all of a sudden I could feel this spirit of suicide coming toward me and it was a powerful powerful spirit and I said Lord I'm not suicidal I said why are you allowing this to happen and then I could feel this spirit coming closer and closer I says Lord I'm not suicidal I said why are you allowing the spirit to come toward me so I started screaming at the spirit in Jesus mighty name I bind you in Jesus mighty name I command you to leave in Jesus name I started screaming louder and louder in Jesus name I bind you in Jesus name I command you to leave over and over I started screaming and each time louder and then finally I felt this thing kind of uh, it kind of gave it kind of it started to dissipate and I could feel it the more I screamed the farther it got away and I said Lord tell me what was this all about why did you bring me down here and show me this spirit? And so my spirit told me, pray for everybody in your family. And so I covered everybody in my family. In Jesus' name, I cover my whole family in the precious blood of Jesus, and I bind the evil spirit of suicide. So I covered my family, my cousins, my all my relatives. I covered everybody in my family in the blood of Jesus. So finally, it got quiet. So I started my truck, and I headed to Bellingham. And as I'm coming out, of Bellingham I felt so invigorated I felt well not only did I feel well but I felt even I felt just powerful and I took care of Nana I got her up and I gave her a bath and I put her back to bed and I fed her and she was still really sick and I bought bleach enough to bleach the whole house I bought two gallons of bleach and I just started bleaching everything scrubbing everything scrubbing the driveway and this took all night and then the sun started coming up the next morning. And I'm still out there washing the driveway, and I heard the phone ringing. Well, back then we had an answering machine. And as I'm walking in the house, the answering machine was answered, and there's a police officer. And he says, he says I'm looking for Mr. Julius. I'm looking for the, the father of Christopher. And so I ran inside. I grabbed the phone before. I didn't want Nana to hear it. So I grabbed the phone, and I said, this is Mr. Julius. I said, tell me is my son okay and this cop just didn't give me a direct answer and I got mad at him because he kept uh, evading the question and I said just tell me is he okay and then finally the, the cop said yes he's okay he's in the hospital he's fine he's got a cracked rib and a broken ankle and I was so relieved to find out that Chris was okay and then finally so I told him I, I says tell me what happened he says he says I need you to come and see me I said, no. I said, I'm going to go in and see my son. I said, tell me what happened. He said, Chris jumped off a bridge and tried to kill himself. And I said, where? He said, uh, the bridge going over Squalicum Way, heading down toward the harbor. He said, the concrete bridge. He said, are you familiar with it? And I said, yes. I said, it's on the way to the hospital. I'll stop and see you on the way to the hospital. So we get there. Nan and I jumped in the truck and, and we're heading to Bellingham. We get to this bridge and there were cops all over the place uh, blue lights flashing all over so I get out and I go see this cop on the bridge and I says I need you to hurry so we can go to the hospital and see my son I said my wife is is still concerned and the cop says he's okay he says I just want to show you something so he brought me to the edge of the bridge and there was a sign on the the southern east part of the bridge and we walked over to that sign and we looked over and he said, do you see the cops down below there? And I said, yeah. He said, that's where your son landed. Your son was on this bridge and landed. I said, wait a minute. That's over 100 feet away from the bridge. I said, nobody can jump 100 feet. I said, don't try to tell me that. I says, nobody can jump that far. He said, was your son in a gang? Was he mixed up in, in anything with a gang where they could have... Pushed him out. I said, nobody could push anybody that far. And he says, come down there with me. I want to show you where he landed. And I said, I want to go. I said, 
My wife is crying. She wants to go. She says, it's on the way to the hospital. Just come down there. I want to show you. So we drove down there, and we were looking at the side of the road where it was just full of blackberry bushes. And inside these blackberry bushes, you could see at the base of this little alder tree, the ground was matted there, and there was kind of a hole in the, in the blackberry bushes right by this tree. Well, you couldn't get to the tree because it was completely surrounded by blackberry bushes. But you could see on the way down from the top to the bottom of the tree, there was four branches broken hanging straight down. You could see where they were freshly broken. And the cop told me that my son bounced from there over the blackberry bushes and landed in the dry creek bed right there. And I said, no way. I said, that is too far. I said, the way that's broken, I said, he would have had to come straight down. I said, if he's coming at that angle, he would have pushed the tree way over and broken the tree down. It doesn't fit. I said, none of this makes sense. And so he showed me where Uncle Chris drug himself from the dry creek bed over to the underneath the bridge and up to the road because that's the only place that, that was open was underneath the bridge. And he said, this is where I found him. Tell me if I'm looking at a miracle. He says, are you a religious family? He says, am I looking at a miracle? And I says, if this is what happened, this is a miracle. I said, you're looking at a miracle. I said, I got to go now. He says, can I follow you to the hospital? He says, I have some questions I would ask your son. I said, by all means. So we get to the hospital. We're walking down the hallway. We get to Uncle Chris's door. And just as I come around the corner there, I see him laying in bed. And then he sees me. We meet eyes. And when he sees me, he smiles. And then he starts to cry. And, 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 and we go rushing to his bedside. And he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And we're just glad he's okay. And he said, I'm sorry. And I said, what are you sorry for? I said, you have nothing to be sorry for. You're alive. That's all That's all that matters. And so he, he says, no, you don't understand. He says, I need to tell you what happened. He says, when I was gone that two days, he said, it was like these my friends were just evil. They wouldn't leave me alone. They wouldn't let me go. They just kept feeding me booze. I finally was able to get away from them. And I come rushing home. He says, when I come rushing home, he says, I saw you on the porch. He says, I come rushing to you. And, and when I was trying to tell you what happened, he says, my mouth would open, but nothing would come out. And he said, he couldn't figure out how come he's trying to tell me what's what happened, but nothing would come out. He'd open his mouth and move. He'd, his jaw would move but and open up and down, but nothing would come out. And so I was asking him, I says, Chris, why are you doing that? I said, tell me. I said, how come you didn't come home? And he was trying to tell me they they wouldn't let me leave, but nothing would come out. And he was looking around, he was totally confused. How, how come he can't talk? How come he can't? He couldn't say a word. And I says, Chris, answer me. What happened? How come you didn't come home? And and he's still trying to tell me, but nothing will come out. And I could see him start to cry. And I reached over and I slapped him. I said, Chris, knock it off. And, and then finally he just broke down and he just started he started crying like a baby, and he looked totally confused, and he turned around, and he walked down the driveway, and he just, he just walked, and that's when I went, went to town to get groceries. Well, he left, and he went down to the club, which is a dance hall down on State Street with his, with his cousin, and when he got there, he saw his brand new girlfriend there, and he was so happy to see her. And he goes walking up to her and she comes up and she slapped him and she says, I just wanted to tell you, we're break, I'm breaking up with you. I've got my new boyfriend here. He looked at her and looked at him and looked at her and looked at him and he just started crying. He just, he couldn't believe it. Here he was, he got slapped at home and now he's here and he gets slapped by his girlfriend and he gets told that she's breaking up with him and he just started drinking. He drank and drank and drank and then finally when the club ended, and everybody was going home. They went outside and, and everybody started getting in the cars and piling. There was this one car that had 14 kids in it and they didn't have room for any more. There was kids in the trunk, in the back seat, and then they were just piled in there. They couldn't get any more in there. And so the girl that was driving, she says, there was Chris and two of his friends, two of his cousins, they were walking home. They didn't have a car, so they started walking down. This girl said, walk down Holly Street. I'll drop some of these guys off and come back and pick you up. And so they walk down Holly Street, down Elder Avenue, and they get to that bridge, and here comes that car with that girl in it and all these kids in it. 
They said, we dropped off two. We can only take two of you. But there was three of them. And he got left. And there he is. He got slapped at home. He got slapped by his girlfriend. And now he's getting left all by himself in the middle of the night. There everybody's driving away and they're laughing. And he's, he's thinking that they're laughing at him. Because there he is all by himself. So he put himself up against, he put his back up against the bridge. And he just told himself, I'm not going anywhere until somebody comes and picks me up. He says, I'm just going to stand right here. And he says, just then something picked him up and pushed him over the side of that, that railing. And he said, oh my God. He says, I'm flying through the air and I'm screaming, Mom, Dad, I don't want to die. Mom, Dad, I don't want to die. And he's flying through the air and it's pitch black. And he's thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. Mom, Dad, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. He says, all of a sudden, it's not dark anymore. It's daylight. And he's laying on his back. And he's still screaming, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then he, he's coming to his senses and, and he realizes, well, how come it's not dark anymore? So he starts to feel his body and he's thinking, am I dead? Is this what it's like to be dead? And he's feeling all over and he can't feel anything. So he goes to get up. He's he's still wondering, am, am, I, am I dead? So he's feeling around, he can't feel anything. And he goes to stand up and he, he realizes he can't stand. He's He's got a broken ankle. So he's there he is on his knees. And, he, and it's hard for him to breathe. He crawls down the creek bed and he's crawling under the bridge to get up onto the road and when he gets to the edge of the road he starts to wave down these cars that are driving past he knows he needs help so he's waving at these cars and they keep driving by driving by driving by and then finally this big semi sees him and pulls over and he goes down and he says are you okay are you okay and he says no I need help and so the truck driver says I'll call the cops so they'll be right here don't worry. And sure enough, the cop gets there. And, and the truck driver leaves, and the cop gets there, and he puts a blanket under Uncle Chris's head and puts a blanket on him and tells him to just lay there and be quiet. So as he's laying there, he sees the cop looking around, trying to figure out what happened. He figured that Uncle Chris was just up on the road and was climbing down the side of the bridge and, and fell and rolled down the hill and, and, and hurt himself. Because there was a trail there coming from up above down the side of the road where kids would use it to get down down below. Uncle Chris says, no, I, I, I didn't fall down there. He says, I know what you're thinking. He says, I jumped from there and I landed over there. He says, you can see where I, where I crawled. And the cop says, no, 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 you didn't. No, you didn't. He said, yeah, that's, he says, that's my, my drag marks right there is where I drug myself up here. So the cop goes down and looks to where he was in the creek bed. And he said, I was up there. And then the cop looks up there. And then when they, they're both looking up there and they see somebody up there looking at them. It looks, it looks like whoever it is up there has a halo on his head. And then finally, the ambulance gets there and brings Uncle Chris to the hospital. And, and while he's there telling, this, telling us this story, there was nurses and doctors in there. And, and the cop was standing there listening to this story. And I just turned to the cop and I asked him did you get the full story and, and the cop says I'm going to go now and he says but first he says I want to tell you something I've been a bigot my whole life and he says when I saw your son he says I just thought he was a drunken Indian and he says I treated him that way and I treated him badly and he says I just wanted to apologize and he says now listening to his story and, and actually seeing what happened he says I know that God is with your family. And he says, I know that I've seen a miracle. He says, I want you to know that I'm not going to be a bigot anymore. He says, this has changed me. And so I thanked him and he was leaving. And as he was leaving, we looked at the doorway. and There's this, this old man coming in and, and both the cop and Chris see this old man. The cop looks at the old man, looks at Chris. They, they look back and forth and they go, the angel. I knew this guy, his name was Sig. He used to own a, an hour body shop on, on Guide Meridian. And I said, Sig, what are you doing here? He was in his 90s. 
And he says, hey, he says, I just wanted to come and see if this young man was okay. He said, I just wanted to come and tell him what I saw. And he says, I was home this morning. Sig was home that morning. And Sig knows that he's going to die in a few days. He just knows somehow that, that God's going to take him in a couple of days. So he's talking to God in, in the morning at his, at his breakfast table. And he says, Lord, I worked with you my whole life. He says, Lord, show me that you are before I go. He says, show me this miracle. So he gets up and he walks down the road, gets to the bridge and he sees the lights and he looks over the bridge and he sees Chris down there. And he says he knows that he's alive and he knows that he must have jumped off that bridge right there. And he was happy to see that he was alive and, and listening to the story outside the door there. He knew that God had led him there to see his miracle before he dies. And he says, I just wanted to tell you people, I've seen my miracle, and now I can go home. That was just part of the miracles that our prayer group was involved with back in the late 80s, early 90s. What are some challenges you have overcome in your life that you are most proud of? Poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that, that uh, my faith as a Christian I think has got to be the first and then foremost part of who I am is is knowing God, knowing Jesus, knowing the, the Holy Spirit, knowing I, have, knowing I have the Holy Spirit here to help guide us and protect us. Young and Indigenous Podcast is part of Children of the Setting Sun Productions. Young and Indigenous is produced by Isabella James, Michelle Pulaski, Santana Rabang, and Ellie Smith. Music by Mark Nichols, Young and Indigenous team. Theme song by Keith Jefferson and Adam Lawrence. One chance. Additional song and music by Jonah Ballou. We would like to thank our partners, First Nations Development Institute, Satterberg Foundation, Novo Foundation, North Sound ACH, Discurrent Foundation, and the Lummi Nation. Branding done by Bo Garrow. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or on childrenofthesettingsunproductions.org. Until next time, lay nooks and saw. See you later.